Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash LCSI. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome to the MindShift Podcast, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. The center of any great learning experience is that it emerges out of a student's authentic interests and motivation. These issues are happening in their lives, whether you talk about it or not. I was going through the lessons and I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm Ki Sung. And I'm Vanessa Rancaño. A heads up that this story includes talk of racial violence and includes a racial slur. Today, we're talking about intergenerational literacy. To do that, I want to introduce you to Connie Williams. For me, going to the grocery store, I had to like literally draw a peanut and then some grapes. This was my grocery list. So the peanuts represent peanut butter. The grapes represent get some grape jelly. I learned to be a pretty good artist. <laughs> you know, so it was gifts that I accumulated to um, survive. There are people living like this, and you shouldn't have to live like this. In this episode, we're going to see how Connie and her family have fared through half a century of battles over reading policy. People have been fighting about how to teach reading for more than 100 years. Do we learn by memorizing whole words or by learning to sound out words? Or is it something in between the two? People are still fighting about this. And we're going to see what that looks like today in Oakland, California, where Connie is on the front lines. Children in Oakland, just like kids around the country, are struggling with reading. Nationally, just a third of fourth and eighth graders are proficient readers. The needle hasn't moved much over the last decade. When it comes to adults, one in five Americans has low literacy in English. Most of those are born here. Around eight and a half million adults are functionally illiterate. Connie Williams is one of them. I sat down with her before coronavirus shut everything down. My name is Connie Lavinia Williams. Can't spell the middle name for me. Well, that can go on there, because I ain't shame. But I never learned how to spell my middle name, because, I, you know, you always have to do your first and use your initial. She pulls out her license and scans it for the sequence of letters that make up her name. L-U-capital-V-E-N-I-A. For as long as Connie can remember, letters have been giving her trouble. Sure, she learned the ABCs, but making sense of how these letters, these weird symbols, combine to form the sounds that make up the English language, that part stumped her. And from what she remembers, nobody taught her that as a kid. Instead, her first teachers used Dick and Jane-style books with simple, repetitive phrases. Look, Jane. Look. 
Look! See Dick. See. See. Oh, see. See Dick. This is an approach to reading that teaches kids to memorize and recognize entire words, rather than start by sounding out individual letters, like you would with phonics. This was in the 60s, and for a decade, phonics proponents had already been arguing the method produced poor reading skills. But this lack of phonics instruction is not what Connie remembers most about her first school. What she remembers is how hard it was to get there on foot. Watching, you know, all the Caucasian kids ride the bus to school. We had like this swamp that we had to walk through <laughs> to get to school and just miles of walking. Connie grew up in Florida, in a small panhandle town where racism and violence could be found even in its name, Perry, after Confederate colonel. During a brutal series of lynchings in the 20s, a white mob burned down the town's black school. In the 60s, when Connie started kindergarten, there was still a single school for black children. The school district was so slow to desegregate, it lost federal funds in the 60s for violating the Civil Rights Act. It was a tense school environment that Connie says left scars. My last memory of that was this uh, Caucasian woman coming in with a gun, threatening to kill all of us. <laughs> that time they were like, call us niggas. And so we like was under the desk, locked in our rooms, terrified. For the next few years, her family moved around a lot. Her dad was in the military. So for a while, school was a blur of teachers and classrooms. North Carolina, New York, you name it. The family finally landed in Oakland, California, where for years black leaders had been demanding the school board address segregation, protesting the concentration of resources in the mostly white Hills schools. In the flatlands, where most black children went to school, teachers were less experienced, classes more crowded, and supplies limited. In the late 60s, sixth graders in the flatlands were two grades behind in reading on average. Students in the Hill schools were above average. Black organizers were considering calling a school boycott and threatening to create their own school board a couple years before Connie got there. At 11 years old, she enrolled at a flatland school in East Oakland. Lockwood Elementary. She was still struggling to read, and other kids noticed. It was making life really hard at school. You know, hearing that laughter, you know, I think that laughter, you know, everybody, ah, you know, that like traumatized me, you know, um, to the point that I was like, oh, I'm never reading out loud again. She doesn't remember being tested for a learning disability, and the school district has no record of her being assessed. Maybe in part because she developed a strategy to avoid reading. I had this, I guess I can say anger, you know, because I, I see the other kids reading and I couldn't read. When it was time to read, you know, I break out with this sweat because they're going to call on me, they're going to call on me. And, and so then, you know, and the anger builds up and so I'm doing stuff to get kicked out. The tantrums worked. But it was a vicious cycle. She was acting out because she was behind. She needed help, but instead she was getting sent home. And at home, there was nobody to help. 
Her mom was busy working two jobs as a waitress and going to school to become a nurse. She was raising three kids basically on her own because Connie's dad was usually away for work. So Connie didn't get help, but she kept getting passed from one grade to the next. She figured out other strategies to hide the fact she couldn't read. In junior high and high school, she avoided reading every way she could. She took classes like PE, JROTC, and music as much as possible. She ran track and played softball. And she and her friend Annie developed a buddy system. She would read, and I would do the math problems, so we kind of teamed up. And I think that's how we kind of, you know, was able to hide what we didn't know. Connie doesn't know whether they actually fooled teachers or gave them away out of dealing with the problem. Either way, Connie graduated from McClyman's High School in 1978, without ever really learning to read. Over the years, she made other attempts to learn. She went to community college, but dropped out. And she signed up for an adult literacy program, where she was working through Little House on the Prairie, until the program lost funding. But mostly, she found ways to get around the fact she couldn't read. To get her driver's license, she took the test multiple times, memorizing the different exam sheets until one repeated. When it was things that I needed to know how to spell, that was when information didn't cost you anything. I would call the operator and say, you know, I need to know how to spell so-and-so and so, and they would spell it for me. And so I was like, oh, thank you, you know. So um, that was, you know, <laughs> so I just used different stuff. It became more and more clear to Connie that this wasn't just her problem. And if it wasn't, she figured maybe telling her story could help lead to change. When that day happened for me, when I just realized we had to fight and struggle for everything, but it made me who I am, to be a help to other people. For the first time, she spoke openly about her experience in front of her church community. Afterward, people, some older, some younger, started confiding in her. People was like, they'll come and they'll say, you know, I, could, I, I couldn't read either. And to hear that, you know, it's like, wow. When it came time for Connie's three daughters to learn to read in the 80s, a new theory of reading instruction called whole language was spreading through classrooms around the world. It shares ideological roots with the theory behind the Dick and Jane style books Connie grew up with. In whole language classrooms, language is taught by keeping it whole and not by breaking it up into smaller parts. Instead of teaching With whole language, the concept was that reading is a natural process, like learning to talk. And if kids were surrounded by stimulating books, they'd pick it up. In whole language classrooms, learning is child-centered, reflecting the students' interests and talents. Learning is At the time, there was already mounting research evidence that learning to read is far from a natural process. Kids have to be taught how this written code represents spoken language. And for that, nuts and bolts phonics instruction is essential. A child may be able to name the letter B, but it's phonics instruction that teaches them how the B sound is connected to the letter B. Still, whole language had obvious appeal for teachers. It promised freedom to be creative instead of running scripted phonics drills. The process of learning is more important than the final product. And teachers are coaches rather than directors. In traditional reading classrooms, textbooks... 
By the mid-80s, California embraced whole language ideology and adopted new textbooks that minimized phonics instruction. A few years later, California's reading scores were among the worst in the country. The scores fell across race and class lines. Whole language wasn't the only factor, but many saw it as a big contributor. This is the world Connie's daughters were educated in. Two of her three daughters struggled with reading, and none of them did well in school. All three ended up dropping out of high school, though they did eventually get their high school diplomas. Now, Connie is raising four of her grandchildren. That's, that's Kimate. Hey, nice to that's meet you. Mercedes. Hi, that's Gerard. Nice to meet you. That's my Stanford kid. He's going to Stanford. That's what he says. Yeah? Yeah, and that's Mr. Maurice. Hey. When they were little, Connie did what she could at home to get them excited about reading and teach them the basics. Come on, Mercedes. Won't you sing with me? Come on, Gerard. Won't you sing with me? How about we all do it all together? A, B. See, you hear that little cute voice. A, B, C, D. Connie has fought not to let her grandkids slip through the cracks the way she believes she and her daughters did. She's long been a regular at their schools, demanding testing for special needs, pushing for progress reports. She eventually moved them into a charter school system where she believes they're getting more attention than they did in their district schools. She's seen a difference in the oldest, Maurice. I mean, I never seen him so confident to control a passing. And I was like, way to go, grandson. I said, y'all, you know, I love you. And this is why I'm at the school. This is why I'm advocating for you um, that, you know, this don't be your story. Today in the Oakland School District Connie went through, that her daughters and grandkids spent most of their school careers, only a third of students are meeting state reading standards. The fact that you have 18% of African-American students reading at a proficient level in Oakland isn't a crisis of epic proportions, says more about the adults than it does the kids. That that can be allowed to persist because everything should stop at that point. Kareem Weaver is a member of the Oakland NAACP's Education Committee. There's a deep history of intentional discrimination, exclusion, racism, white supremacy. That is true. What's happening today, though, today, if we talk about why kids can't learn, the first thing that comes out usually is something related to the children, their circumstance, their life, the trauma, the poverty. Don't get me wrong, trauma, trauma matters. But this is the least traumatized generation of African-American students in American history. Kareem's point is that these inequalities have become an excuse to accept dismal outcomes. At some point in time, you would think you'd step back and objectively say, hmm, unless our collective kids are broken and damaged, then maybe it's something that we're doing. White students in Oakland are faring better than black students when it comes to reading. That's at least in part because white families disproportionately have the means to supplement school reading instruction with their own educational capital and with paid tutors. But even with those resources, almost a third of white students aren't meeting state standards. What are we doing again? How are we teaching them to read? What does the science say? 
In Oakland, like in districts around the country, reading is still taught using some of the same discredited methods that failed Connie and her daughters. There is at this point a robust and largely settled body of research that supports the views of phonics champions. And Kareem says it's precisely because of the way racism and poverty stack the odds against so many Oakland students that it's essential teachers use the approach proven by researchers to give the most kids the best shot at becoming strong readers. That's why Kareem is working with parents like Connie on a campaign called Literacy for All. We need a literacy program in place. And, you know, and it's like, I keep fighting for that, fighting for that, fighting for that. Then here's this organization come in place. I'm like a kid in the candy store. It's Christmas. We are here tonight to encourage you to show your support for this movement. At a school board meeting, parents urged their school leaders to formally sign on to the Literacy for All campaign. It's a collaboration between the NAACP and an advocacy organization called Oakland Reach, started by Oakland parents whose kids attend some of the district's lowest performing schools. I went through Oakland Public Schools myself. I read my first book at 38 years old, and that made my life very hard not knowing how to read. They set a goal to get 20% more kids reading on grade level every year. To get there, they say the way reading is taught in Oakland schools has to change. I'm a ninth grade teacher at McClymus High School. I have ninth graders who read at first grade levels, second and third grade levels. My name is Keita, born and raised right, right here in Oakland. The same challenges that my mother had for me trying to get an education 45 years ago are the same challenges that I now face. I've already struck out twice when it came to my kids' education. I refuse. I refuse to do this a third time. We got a fire in our belly about this, and we're ready to go. The wait is over, and the time is now. Thank you. By telling her story, Connie helped build a local movement. Now parents are demanding change. But what should it look like? Coming up, we'll go inside one Oakland classroom to see what's working and what's not. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. In order to understand what it is about the district's current approach to reading that's not working and find possible solutions, 
Kareem Weaver has been visiting Oakland classrooms. What table has got came in and gotten started so quietly? Purple table? At Markham Elementary School in East Oakland, just 3% of kids are meeting state reading standards. Today, Kareem is sitting in on Sabrina Kazi's first grade class, where a literacy specialist has been volunteering to help Sabrina teach the kids to read. Okay, this is the part that gets tricky for us, right? Together, they're trying out a different curriculum from the district standard. It uses this highly systematic approach to reading called structured literacy. Students learn the smallest units of sound and build up to more complex material following a specific sequence. We're really good at hearing the sounds in the words and pulling out those sounds. Where we need more practice is looking at the letters, making the sounds, and blending them to make a word. For kids who struggle with reading, researchers have found it's essential to provide explicit, systematic phonics instruction. But the primary curriculum Sabrina was expected to use to teach reading in Oakland relies in part on a different theory of how people learn to read. One with roots in that whole word approach used to teach Connie and her daughters. I was going through the lessons and I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, how am I supposed to teach my kids that in order to be stronger readers, they need to scoop up words or they need to keep on trudging along when my kid, I got half my class that doesn't know basic alphabet sounds. Oakland isn't alone. The curriculum, Lucy Calkins Units of Study, is one of the most popular in the country. But a review by a panel of literacy experts released this year found major problems with it. The report said one central flaw is an approach to reading that teaches kids to guess at words based on contextual cues, like pictures. Today, even the strongest readers in Sabrina's first grade class are still at a kindergarten level. Sabrina expects no more than six students will end the year at grade level. It fit. It fit. I don't hear all voices. Wait, my turn. Wait, wait, wait. I asked her what happens to the rest of the kids. They get pushed through. It's frowned upon to hold back little black boys and brown girls. And, That's yeah. considered racist to hold them back. Can't be holding back all the black and brown kids. Where's the pressure coming from? Everywhere. Everywhere administration, the higher-ups from her, the community, their parents, you know? Social promotion is like, it's what we do because it just looks bad and feels bad to hold them back. Not that holding kids back and trying the same approach again would necessarily fix things, Kareem says. Plus, there's evidence that holding kids back creates its own problems. But the literacy coach, Jessica Slowerski, says the status quo isn't working either. I mean, you can look at the data for the city and you can see how many kids are leaving any given elementary school functionally illiterate. It it just becomes like someone else's problem, really. Now look at this room on a Wednesday night. Look around. This is what happens when parents come together for their kids. Okay. At an event for parents as part of the Literacy for All campaign, Connie's at a table at the front of the room with her granddaughter. And I'm excited because, you know, this, this, is, this has been my story. This has been my pet peeve about helping us to read. Oakland school leaders are considering dropping the curriculum they were teaching to adopt something that's more in line with the research on reading instruction. It's going to be a long process, and there are already fights brewing about the curriculums they're considering. 
the Literacy for All Coalition is hoping to give parents the tools to spot quality reading instruction and advocate for their kids in school. Parents break into groups with teachers to talk about the state reading assessments and other expectations of students. They take turns introducing themselves. My name is Connie, but they call me Mama Williams at the school. Because um, I raise a lot of sand. <laughs> and I've been, I've been fighting um, since my kids were in, in school. I've been singing this song. So now to see that it's considered a state of emergency, I'm very happy. It's going to be a struggle because they didn't get the phonics in the beginning. It was kicked out. Connie is in her element. She offers advice about parents' rights, fields questions about navigating special education, and delivers a critique of implicit bias in standardized tests. Her granddaughter Mercedes is watching her grandma, looking a little amused. She's heard all this a million times, but her reading scores are improving. It took three generations, but it finally feels like somebody is paying attention. It reached somebody because I didn't get tired. Maybe I, you know, drug a little bit here, but now that spark is back because it's like, I didn't do this in vain. I didn't do this to have pity. I did this because I didn't want it to be my kid's story and it wasn't going to be my grandkids and it definitely ain't going to be my great-grandkids. Mindshift is produced by me, Vanessa Rancaño. And me, Ki Sung, along with Katrina Schwartz. Our editor is Jessica Placek. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Erica Aguilar is our head of podcasts. Ethan Lindsay is executive editor for news. And Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. Special thanks to Connie Williams, Kareem Weaver, and Sabrina Kazi. If you love Mindshift, sign up for our email newsletter. We're hosting a series of Zoom chats with folks you hear on our podcast. You can sign up at mindshift.kqed.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.